This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 you're listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is one of the most misrepresented texts in the scriptural canon. In our popular culture, we are meant to associate the sins committed by these two cities as being due to sexual immorality. And while, uh, in a sense, that is true, uh, really fast before I get too far into the thick of the episode, I just want to say on the onset that this episode is going to likely ruffle some some feathers. Um, And, uh, you know, of course, Rowdy and I never want to be provocative for provocative sake. Um, but, you know, I think that this has been really misrepresented by by churches, and I think that in general a lot of the culture war stuff around sex has been misrepresented by Christians throughout history and uh, is unscriptural, you know, plain and simple. And uh, I don't want the takeaway from this to be that Rowdy and I are liberals or something to that Extent first of all, I think that those types of uh, of uh, labels, liberal and, and conservative, is is uh, kind of silly and childish. Um, but you know, if if what you mean by liberal is that, you know, I think that we can uh, you know mold the text to fit you know anything we want to, then I would uh, strongly uh, disagree with that idea, and that's not what I'm advocating at all. If anything. I'm trying, as anybody should be who's a Christian, trying to be as scriptural as possible. And if I've missed the mark during this episode, I'm totally willing <laughs> to admit that. But uh, from where I'm at right now, this is uh, this is what my conscience, how I how I uh, am responding to to what the text is giving me. This is how I'm seeing it, how I'm reading it, and how I'm hearing it. Now, again, I could be wrong. But, you know, I'm, I am attempting to be as scriptural as possible here. So uh, if you disagree with the conclusions that I make in this episode, um, then that's fine. You know, you're free to disagree. Um, but, you know, I would just ask, uh, you know, from a, a presenter of this podcast to a listener, friend to virtual friend, you know, just to... Uh, Respect Rowdy and I enough to at least hear us out. And if you still disagree, then that's fine, but at, but at least hear what we have to say. But the problem 
is that I so often see Christians pronouncing doom upon the modern West for its growing acceptance of the LGBT plus movement. And, you know, a lot of times they'll equate it with, uh, you know, the acceptance of this as this impending destruction that Sodom and Gomorrah uh, would, would, would face on the U.S. should uh, the U.S. and just the Western world in general uh, not repent of that. Um, there's a lot of problems with that. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say that the problem that they're saying is that the West is doomed to fall. I mean, that's true. Scripturally, all civilizations are doomed to fall and are under the wrath of God. Um, but the problem and the difference in my head and how in, in what I'm hearing from Scripture is that it's not about sex, you know, on, on the surface. I think that's kind of a distraction. It's a way to, to uh, point your finger at other people. It's purely and simply about the abuse of the poor and the outsider, the widow and the orphan, which the West was, uh, was abusing long before uh, the, the gay rights movement was ever initiated. I mean, look at uh, Jim Crow slavery, the, you know, how we treated migrants and the poor and, and, uh, and uh, um, you know, minorities in this country, you know, long before that. You know, the, the American native you know, how we treated them is, is, is more in line with what would bring a, uh, bring down God's wrath rather than, uh, you know, what's going on in the LGBT movement. And that is, that is my, my thesis according to, again, what I'm hearing from scripture. And, and I'll go more into how all that relates later on. Um, but again, so that's, that's my, that's my thesis. Um, again, if by the end of it you disagree, that's fine. But at least, um, at least hear me out. You know, I, I I would appreciate it if you if you heard us out. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, "My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way." They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So starting out, uh, we pick up with two of the three men. Uh, remember that one of the men went with Abraham, and the other two are with Lot. Now, you know, let's not theologize once again. Let's just hear the story. I will posit, as the episode continues, that the identity of these men is of extreme importance in this particular chapter specifically. Uh, but before we get into the thick of it, I just wanted to point out really fast that the, the use of the unleavened bread, which is an important recurring motif throughout the narrative, um, is, uh, is really important to pay attention to, especially this early on. In short, bread in general is routinely throughout Scripture tied to the teaching itself. It's something of nourishment. The, the teaching nourishes you, right? Man does not live off of bread alone, but upon every word from, uh, from the Word of God. Um, leaven 
then right is the filler in the bread which makes it rise it is in essence the content of the teaching we will see throughout the story um that leavened bread is tied to false teaching as in the warning of Jesus to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees the unleavened bread leaves it unfilled in fact the word unleavened matzatz has the connotation of something that has been drained out right so what is being drained out well i would posit false teaching that's what it seems to mean at least god is draining out the teachings of man and replacing it with his leaven without going into too much of an aside i just wanted to bring that up since it will occur many times throughout the old and new testaments and i think it's important to bring up because these these details are sometimes kind of confusing for modern ears it seems kind of random but Nothing in scripture is random. Those are all really good points, Blaze. Uh, last episode, I talked a lot about our inability to assign an identity to the three men that visited Abraham um, from the details exclusively in chapter 18. But here in the first verse of chapter 19, it does say right there that two of them were Malachim, angels or messengers. I personally like to lean more toward the translation of messengers because of the ambiguity surrounding messenger. We, again, can't know exactly who or what they are. The assumption then, and what the text literally calls them, is men. It calls them messenger here in the first verse of chapter 19 and continually refers to them as men. I like that translation of messenger more than angel uh, because we don't really have a consensus across church traditions on what exactly an angel even is. So I'm just going to stick with messenger, but the story is clear either way, however you want to translate that messenger or angel. Another thing I notice here is that the parallel between Abraham and Lot is striking. In chapter 18, Abraham sought to serve the men, and here Lot does the exact same thing. The details are really precise. Both Abraham and Lot offer to feed the men, they offer to bring water for them to wash their feet, and they offer a place for them to, to rest. However, there is a clear distinction made between Abraham and Lot. The place that Abraham offers up for them to rest is under a tree, which is symbolic of the nurturing oases in the wilderness where Abraham is dwelling. But Lot offers up his house, a building in the city, a city that is about to be destroyed, as all cities will one day be. And the coming conflict is foreshadowed here as well when the two messengers insist on sleeping in the town square. And Lot must convince them otherwise and to stay with him instead. Now, before we get into this next section, I just wanted to warn you that this will be a long chunk of text, but I think that it'll just flow better if you hear it in one sitting. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great. 
so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me, and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there, is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Now, let's first talk about the behavior of the men of the city against the visitors of Lot. First of all, it's fairly clear that their intention, you know, is to rape these men. Um, I don't think anybody disagrees with that. But here comes the problem with our modern reading of the text. We get so focused on the sexual crime that we miss out on the bigger picture. The bigger picture is this the harsh treatment of the outsider, plain and simple. That is the point the text is making with an extreme hyperbole, such as this, where these men are attempting to rape these outsiders. I mean, obviously that's wrong. Now, the text is very stark when it presents this. First of all, the two visitors of Lot are basically immaculate in the story. They are, by and large, perfect human beings in the story. They do nothing but the will of God and speak using only his words. And I think the most forceful point about this is that they are unnamed. I think this is also important because it carries the message that the, the only name in Scripture that matters is the name of God and his two character identities in Scripture, which is Yahweh and Elohim, and in that combined usage of Yahweh, Elohim, that is the name of God. And the fact that the men of Sodom are attempting to desecrate the honor of these immaculate figures is an extreme example that the text is making. Um, you know, in, in the, the perfection of these characters, I mean, you can they're, they're so perfect that people mistake them for the Trinity. So, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, it's, it's, you know, if you're being uh, mistaken for God himself, then, you know, you're doing something right. But uh, in so doing, though, because they're representing God, they are essentially raping and dishonoring God himself by doing so to those who represent him so perfectly. It reminds me of what Jesus says in the Gospels, where he equates the treatment of the lowly to the treatment of himself. What you did and didn't do to the least of these, you did and didn't do to me. It's the same concept here. 
I also want to touch on the elephant in the room, at least for most of us in the West, uh, for the, you know, homosexual element here, perhaps. This text is so tied to homosexuality in the popular culture that the term sodomy has become a bit of a shorthand for related activities. I think, honestly, this is egregious to mix the two things as if a perfectly consensual queer relationship is at all analogous towards what is happening here. Um, you know, and I'll touch more on that in a sec. But I think it's important to understand the cultural context of this section. For one, the idea of a man raping another man in the ancient Near East is probably the most dishonor you could bestow upon somebody. And that's just the cultural norm. It's essentially stripping one of their manhood to sleep with them as one would with a woman. That's the idea. It's not complicated, but it's also certainly uncomfortable for modern ears. But that's what we have to submit to. We have to submit to the text and how it presents itself. And this is why, in the story, Lot offers to give up his virgin daughters. Again, we, we cringe as modern hearers of the text, but all this is demonstrating uh, is, is how sadistic the men of Sodom are, and the fact that these two messengers are the perfect representation of God only goes to demonstrate the city dweller's complete rejection of God, which is why Sodom and Gomorrah are used symbolically to describe Israel and Judah and the prophets. Again, none of this is about sex. You know, it's, it's an image. It's like in, in the uh, prophetic literature. Harlotry is something that gets brought up a lot. It's not literal har harlotry. It's just that Israel and, and uh, God had a contract like a marriage, and Israel broke it by following other gods. It's as simple as that. It's an image that the text is using. The, the, the image is not on um, sex in general. You know, that's almost like a given in the text. It's, it's just an image. And that's the, uh, that is the underlying issue. Because, uh, you know, when, when we see in the rest of the Bible, the point in all of this is the extreme mistreatment of other people. We, we see this the most explicitly in Ezekiel 16, where it just says straight up that the sin of Sodom is described as them being overfed and unconcerned and failing to help the poor and the needy. That's it. That is the underlying issue, the attempted rape of the visitors to Lot is merely demonstrating their depravity. And a lot of people will then, you know, they'll bring up Jude, where he discusses that Sodom and Gomorrah went after strange flesh. But again, if we read this context, Jude makes it clear at the, the, at the bottom line that the overarching sin is to follow in the footsteps of Cain, to utterly refuse to be your brother's keeper. Therefore, to use the, the Greek of Jude, the sarkos eteros, the other flesh, strange flesh of the epistle, can refer to nothing other than the behavior of the men of Sodom, which was an extreme defilement of the outsider, plain and simple. Now I know, like I said in the intro, that there will be some who will hear this and get upset and accuse me of liberalizing the text, but I feel like I'm doing the exact opposite. And I'm not saying that the Bible condones... Um, you know, uh, homosexuality or anything like that. In fact, it, it obviously 
does the exact o- opposite, but the the functionality is different than how we think of it in in our modern context. Because what we do is we uh, we like to construct laws uh, constricting people's behavior, but um, that's not what the Bible's interested in. You know, sexual intercourse between men is considered an abomination in Leviticus eighteen simply because, and I want everybody to hear this, because in scriptural terms. It is non-functional in the, sen- in the sense that it doesn't produce progeny, which, again, we have to remember, guys, that Scripture is all about the progeny. That is how one continues. That is ultimately how God's message uh, is continued. It's a, it's a simple concept, and it's a literary reality, okay? It is part of the literature of the text. This by no means gives us any right to condemn modern gay people simply because the scriptural progeny is also so much more than just reproduction it's about the spirit of what it represents you know it's like when when paul talks about the 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 spirit of the law versus the 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 written part of the law or um you know circumcision of the heart versus circumcision of the flesh that we've talked about in earlier episodes this is the 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 same idea you know the 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 uh, progeny that scripture is concerned about. Ultimately, everything else is just an image, but ultimately, it's that of the teaching, and it could care less about actual reproduction. You know, God will close the womb if if it's necessary. You know, He doesn't care about you know actual reproduction in this genealogical line because the men are all emasculated; they're all circumcised, right? The real problem at hand is a refusal to spread the teaching, which is embodied in the act of, uh, of men having sex with other men, you know, in the context of Leviticus. It's, it's just like the sin of Onan, you know, spilling his seed on the ground. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for being unwilling to spread the teaching. And it is tragic that uh, this has resulted in the way that it has um, you know, to, to be self-righteous. And that's really what is born out of this, this attitude that uh, Christians throughout the centuries, but, um, you know, I guess I'm speaking more towards modern Christians, um, this self-righteousness towards uh, people who are gay or are on the uh, broader LGBT spectrum somewhere. Nowhere does scripture give us the liberty to chastise or even to disapprove of what our brethren do. The only acceptable conduct towards anyone, be they gay or not, is love and acceptance, period. Because scripture is indicting all of us, and there's no escaping that. Right now, Rowdy and I are lounging in his house using our expensive equipment to record this podcast while there are starving people out in the world. Will we be judged for this? Likely so. The Bible is against the city, so anyone who lives in the the comforts of the city, it ignores the outcry of the poor and the oppressed, are finding themselves under God's judgment. Yet we judge people's sexual behavior. I mean, are you kidding me? Right? I, I hope you can kind of see what I'm saying and, and, and can kind of see my rationale here. But that's what we do in the West. We are so wrapped up in this nonsense. You can't impose Leviticus 18 onto anyone just like you can't impose circumcision onto anyone. 
You can't impose your traditions, your laws onto anyone. We're all supposed to have this open table fellowship. It's not about people's personal sex life unless that itself becomes a barrier towards actually practicing the gospel. And that's where, you know, you have in the New Testament, Paul writing to the Corinthians to stop practices that are hindering them, right? It's because that, that those things were, were causing issues for them and, uh, and, and, you know, renouncing their, their ego and uh, living out the gospel teaching. That is the point, right? We will all face the judgment seat of Christ, and the business at hand will be how you treated the neighbor, not who you were married to or who were, who you were attracted to or any of that. Like, I, I am convinced that the Bible is not concerned with that at all. So to anybody who's, you know, perhaps of the LGBT spectrum in the audience, if there is any, um, you know, please don't allow the judgment of these quote-unquote Christians um, that that cast judgment on you to discourage you from the gospel and don't feel like you have to be somebody other than your authentic self to practice the gospel. Because the, the Gentiles did not need to become Jews to practice the gospel. They didn't need to take up kosher to practice the gospel. Because if you can work in a soup kitchen or simply help anyone in need— you're doing more for the gospel than most of us, especially, um, you know, those of us who stick a finger in your face and, and tell you um, you're no good and, 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 and stand on this pedestal when they should really be looking at themselves, right? That is the calamity. And I can only imagine how, how difficult this is for, uh, for people of the LGBT community because, I mean, it's almost like there's this barrier between them and the Bible that just doesn't exist with other demographics. And it's, it's really tragic to me, but I, I really think that this is man-made. I, I don't think that this is really um, what, you know, what the Bible is, is saying, because again, you, you, you have to, you have to be able to separate what is going on literarily and, and understand um, you know, why things like, like Leviticus 18, 22 exist in the literary sense and and what it's actually saying and 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 uh what Paul is talking about in Romans 1 and what he's talking about in um in 1 Corinthians 6 you have to be able to to view all of that within the context and the literary aspects but again at at no point does any of that ever turn into you pontificating on anybody else towards how they should live their lives without looking at yourself. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a really, really weird thing that, that seems to just happen with, with this one topic, you know, and, and I guess perhaps it's because it's becoming more accepted uh, in the world. Uh, you know, perhaps there's just more of, a, more of an outcry against it, but what it's turned into is this nasty um, treatment of, of uh, people, and it's created this rift. And people wonder why, uh, you know, young uh, young people are routinely leaving religion and uh, not wanting anything to do with this. Well, you know, if uh, if somebody was telling me I was going to to hell purely for just being myself, 
you know, being Blaze Webster without any other context, I mean, yeah, I mean, why why would you want to be a part of that? But here's the the thing about scripture is that we are all in, excuse my French, deep shit. Why? Because we live relaxed lives while other people are suffering. And that's that's really the calamity and that's what that's what uh the the prophetic writings are about. You know, it's hardly any of it is about uh uh you know, sexual ethics or anything like that about um behavior in that regard. It's all about how how uh the neighbor was treated. So if my fellow Christians could please just focus more on that instead of trying to change legislation or, you know, and engaging in the culture war stuff, you know, I think that would be really great. You hit the nail on the head. I don't really have much else to add, but I am rowdy and I always have something to say. You know, the more the scientific community studies the anthropological and biological phenomenon that surrounds LGBT plus individuals and their lived experiences, the more it seems that members of that community are unequivocally authentic. What I mean is that a gay person is just gay. An asexual person is just asexual. And a trans person is just a person who rejects the gender that aligns with their birth sex. And that's just what it is. They can't control it. There is no quote-unquote fix. It just is what it is. If this is the case, and the dominant Christian narrative in the West is to reject these people, how is this attitude any different from those Christians who reject a black person just for being black? They are just black. It is what it is. It doesn't mean anything. Of course, Blackness has to mean something in our modern day because of the way that black people's oppressors have treated them in recent history. But in the grand scheme of human existence, a person's skin color doesn't mean anything. That is, unless we make it mean something, and if we do that, it's probably bad news for the person who we are assigning a definition. Now, for most Christians, if they heard another Christian say, black people don't belong in the church then they would be greatly offended and would no doubt admonish their brother who said that. But again, this type of rejection, the type of rejection that says black people don't belong in church, is no different than the rejection Christians cast toward people in the LGBT plus community. If a woman is exclusively attracted to women, or a person is born male but wants to be a woman, or a trans male is exclusively attracted to women, or a non-binary individual has no attraction preferences, then it is what it is. That is their reality. God made them that way, and you dare accuse God's creation, God's image of being formed by sin? Do you dare call God sinful? The pangs of this issue dig deep, because if you hear what I am saying— then you will realize that we Christians have totally restricted a huge percentage of the human population from accessing the gospel, and we have instead concocted a gospel of exclusivity, meaning our gospel is just for us. I'm speaking to the church now. Any church that is like what we have described is like the town that rejects the presence of or the words delivered by Christ's apostles. Christ himself says that any who rejects them or their message will have it worse on the day of judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. 
it's not because they're gay. It's because they've rejected or harmed the outsider and have likewise rejected Christ's teaching. And now that we have hopefully eradicated this harmful way of interpreting this text and compartmentalizing it into an anti-gay narrative, let's actually look at some of the interesting details in the passage. What stands out first and foremost to me is Lot and his family's lack of urgency to heed these two messengers' warning. Lot warns his two sons-in-law who were going to marry his uh, daughters, but these two sons think that he's joking. And I think that's an important detail because the two sons are sodomites. Uh, they're not members of Lot's household yet. They are engaged to his daughters. And they think that Lot's joking about what the messengers told them, so they are functionally laughing at the messengers. Uh, we've already said that these two messengers are immaculate, perfect representations of God's will, and that kind of makes us imagine them as these glowing, winged, godlike beings, because that's what we think of when we hear angel. However, the text doesn't say anything to that effect. Rather, concerning Lot and his family's disregard for the two men's warnings, I can only assume that the two men didn't have a very domineering presence. They were probably dirty, homeless, wandering Bedouins. Remember what we've talked about in previous episodes about the disdain that many Mesopotamian cultures had toward Bedouin shepherds. They saw them as filthy, lowly, dirty people, the same way that a lot of Americans think of homeless people today. I mean, the two men even explain that they would have preferred to sleep in the town square rather than Lot's house. And, and this is all even easier to see if we recall the Bible's favoritism toward this very culture of people. The wanderer, the one who commits their entire existence to God's shepherdic direction, is the scriptural ideal. Think of Christ, a wandering homeless man gathering the lost sheep of Israel. Understanding the two messengers in this light will also help us understand the city dweller's attitude toward them. The city folk were not homosexually attracted to the two men's immaculate nature, as some would have you believe, but rather they saw them as outsiders, as Blaise said. And not just outsiders, but outsiders worthy of social condemnation. The response of the city dwellers then is to dualistically pleasure themselves through a sexual act of domination, which was common at that time, while also totally humiliating the two strangers through rape. Another detail that I think is interesting and even a bit humorous is that after Lot has continually failed to stir up his family to leave Sodom, he displays his childish obsession with city life. He begs them to spare a nearby city so that he and his family can escape there instead of going into the wilderness because he suggests that he cannot survive in the wilderness even though the two angels specifically said, go to the hills so that you will survive. Even after the warning of a great destruction coming upon these two icons of city life, Lot desires not to be like his uncle Abraham, but instead remain in a city, just one you know that hasn't been destroyed yet. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that, 
when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So there it is. There's God's recompense for the actions of Sodom and Gomorrah. Forever a warning to any civilization which mistreats the least among us. I think this part is powerful for many reasons. Um, One, it is a lesson to not be attached to the city. We've seen just how awful it is, and we see how Lot's wife is attached enough to look back, and she is turned into a pillar of salt. Now, that's very evocative. Now, the original Hebrew in this part has less of a connotation of a pillar and more of a stand, but it still works. She becomes fused with the city almost, as the city is made up of pillars and towers and buildings as well, right? You get the image. These these are things that are, are erected by human hands. They're made by human beings, the work of human beings. It's like the Tower of Babel. Her attachment to it kept her from escaping. Again, like we've said many, many times, this is literature. So don't be attached to the world or anything in the world lest you be like Lot's wife and fall with the world. It's also worth noting before we move on to remind the hearer that Lot in Hebrew has the connotation of clinging to something. We see the realization of that with Lot's wife in this passage. Yeah, and as I mentioned a moment ago, even with Lot, because he desires to escape to yet another city. Uh, One thing that stands out in this passage is the repetition of words. In verse 24, it says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. We need to remember this. God is directly involved with the destruction of the city. It's clear through the repetition of the Lord, the passage, the the verse here is reminding you who exactly is committing this act of destruction. You know, this makes many of us uncomfortable, especially when we are trying to answer the ever-looming question about how a good God lets bad things happen, or how the Bible can say God does things which appear to be evil in our opinion. This verse explains it. The Lord rained sulfur and fire to destroy the cities from himself. We can't say he let it happen the way that we like to say the Lord works in mysterious ways and just allows bad stuff to happen sometimes. It says it right there that the sulfur and fire came from him. Now, I know that the matter is a little bit more nuanced than that in other Meshalim or examples, but the fact of the matter is that God is behind everything. Nothing happens that he didn't make happen. However, our afflictions are not the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah as conveyed in this story. So, Instead of being vexed by this reality, we should be thankful that we still have our nefesh, our breath, which means we still have time to repent, unlike Sodom and Gomorrah. The text also repeats this word overthrow. Uh, In Hebrew, this word is hafak, which doesn't have the militaristic connotation that overthrow does in our English language, like, you know, a military power taking over a city and ruling over it but rather it has a connotation of something being turned over like a rock, uh, changed, you know, or transformed. The city is being transformed into something new through this destruction. For any of you who remember biology or ecology class, it makes me think of ecological succession, 
where a fire or some other natural disaster lays an entire ecosystem to waste, only for a new one to grow up from the ashes of the former. This understanding makes sense in light of the Semitic emphasis on functionality. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were completely wicked, with not even one righteous person who could potentially do God's will. So the city was non-functional, and God laid it to waste. He hafak, he overturned it. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is one of the, you know those those more off the color episodes in scripture and definitely something you would not likely hear in Sunday school. Uh, but what is happening here should be fairly clear. Remember what I said about progeny. Here the daughters of Lot are clinging to the ruined cities of Sodom and Gomorrah just like their mother. There is no men around them. They they have just been presumably destroyed by God. So they dishonor their father by raping him and, you know, essentially getting pregnant through incest. These descendants are called Moabites, and Moab in Hebrew means from the father. So, yeah, it's kind of funny. I guess that's how the, the Bible feels about human genealogy. It's not a flattering sight, but it's evocative of what this entire chapter has been teaching us. And the second son from the younger daughter was named Ben-Ami, which means son of my people or my folk. So this is evocative of what Blaze said, that both of these daughters are clinging to the culture of their city. According to the text, the daughters are taking matters into their own hands, and the first daughter even says, we shall lie with him so that we may preserve offspring from our father. This sort of thing does not sit well with us moderners, and, and that's the point. These two are committing the crime of the city. And what do you know? There's nothing gay about it. So at the very least, we should accept that it's not about homosexuality, but the underlying sin of this story is rape. Plain and simple. You know, ironically, this is a sin that has been rooted in church history for hundreds of years. Even to this very day, there are priests, pastors, and other religious authorities sexually abusing their congregants, many of which are children. But we're upset about gay people having rights outside of our church. I mean, give me a break. The sin in chapter 19 is all about abusing the weakling, the stranger. Functionally, in this situation, Lot is the stranger because he's the only one in this story who doesn't approve of this abusive behavior of sexually forcing oneself onto another person. I mean, other than the 
two messengers, obviously. You know, it's humorous in a sense. Not the subject matter of rape, but the pattern of sin. You know, God destroys these cities for their wickedness and abuse toward the sojourner. And the one family that he decides to save from that destruction preserves that very sinful attitude that the city had. These two daughters of Lot are who we should project our egos onto in order to understand what the story is trying to teach us. When God saves us from the destruction we deserve, we return to and cling to the sin that led us to that destruction. I'm going to say it again. When God saves us from the destruction we deserve, we return to and cling to the sin that led us to that very destruction. But worse than that is that we distract ourselves from hearing the teaching, the thesis of this mashal, by pointing our finger at our neighbor. I don't mean to be crass, but when we use our neighbor, the outsider, to escape the reality of our own sin, we are functionally raping them. We are using them for our own benefit. That's the teaching of this message. Do not abuse the outsider lest you face destruction. If you don't hear this teaching, but instead condemn the outsider for being the abuser because they are something that you don't personally like, then you are the abuser of the outsider. Please hear what the text is saying and what I am trying to teach you. For the sake of your own nefesh and the nefesh of your neighbor, listen. God bless you all, and may you find peace in your labor this week. Hear scripture and do scripture. I can never say it enough, and you will never hear it often enough. We'll talk to you next week, inshallah. Goodbye. Streams of the waters of